From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on Sirius XM. We do this every week, coming to you virtually via Zoom. It's virtual, but we've got the whole crew. That's been the benefit. Shane Jensen's here. Eric Bradlow's here. Audie Weiner. This is Cade Massey. We do this every week, of course. We're going to begin, as we usually do, talking about the world of COVID-19. It's important context for our lives and sports. It also brings lots of um, statistical and analytical challenges. Guys, I know that I feel like I've better understood what I've been navigating since I've been having this conversation with you guys weekly. Um, We've got some good sports to talk about the second, third quarter. We talked to Joe Banner, our interview in the fourth quarter, um, as our usual pattern holds. Guys, um, afternoon to you, and I'm curious, there's always something going on in the world of COVID-19. What lately has caught your eye? All right, I'll jump in. I'm teaching, in the midst of teaching my MBA class, and I have to say that I've uh, realized some of the deficiencies in our education because of COVID. So namely, we spend much too much time talking about significance testing in statistical curriculum. And statistical significance for our listeners is all about is the effect statistically um, significant, meaning that what is the, if there was no effect, how likely could this have happened under a sort of a chance, just by basically by chance. And the reason why the COVID age has made this so important is that so many of the things that we're interested in knowing are hard to know with any accuracy. And so some of the effects that we're observing are statistically insignificant from a statistical perspective, but the effect size is, it has still has an enormous uh, uncertainty bound on how big that effect size might be from little to big. So the news that came out was, there's an article about masks and, and um, how effective masks are. And there was a Danish study where, where um, half the people was randomized, were randomized into masks, and the other half were, were, were not, were told not to change their behaviors. They were sort of uh, specified non-mask users. And they looked to see what the infection rate was at the end of the study. And while it was a little lower in the mask group, it was not very much lower. Now, obviously, th- this study can only measure certain things, but the effect size was huge. I mean, the uncertainty was huge. So in other words, masks could, mask could be as, as little as no effect to, a, to as much as a doubling of effect. We had so little ability to make that judgment based on the end of a somewhat lengthy um, multi-thousand person study. I, mean, I, thought the, I thought the effect was, oh, sorry. I thought the effect was mass was twofold. No, no, it's 1.8 to 2.1. No, 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 no. When I say twofold. Eric, I mean, can we just say real quickly, just want to emphasize this. We have, there's kind of, you can know something doesn't have an effect with precision, or you can say this is, we can't tell from the data. There's yes. no difference from these data. And that's what this study was. So it shouldn't have been reported as no effect because you don't know that for sure. The data don't support that, but they, Right. It's a very That's exactly it. There's a huge yeah. difference between no effect and no statistical evidence that that reaches a certain standard threshold that we're used to talking about when we do significance testing. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think, you know, the goal of significance testing is something that we is, is equally, if not more important, I think, in our statistics curriculum, which is assessing basically when you see some result from a scientific study or a medical experiment or whatever that you try and kind of assess, you know, whether or not that result is actually worth noticing 
while acknowledging the natural variability in whatever scientific process you're modeling. So like kind of making decisions based, you know, while acknowledging uncertainty is the goal of significance testing. It's just specifically how we do significance testing. Yeah, exactly. Mostly oh, I don't want to get historically motivated than anything else. The way yeah. in which we actually do it, I, I agree, is kind of relatively flawed compared to some other things we could be doing. But also what I've noticed in this in this whole COVID experimental, you know, while the research being done is so um, the effect sizes are at the end of the study still so uncertain. And that's because of sample sizes, which seem large, are turning out to be not sufficient to get accurate estimates that, at the level that we need. Right. So right. let me right. first comment on your study and then I want to talk about the point you just raised, Adi. But mm -hmm. remember, the one thing I thought was more universally believed about masks was that if I'm wearing a mask, I'm less likely to transmit it to you. So that's not what your study talked about. Your no, not says, at all. No, no, no. So I didn't saying, do it. I they didn't <laughs> When I was saying twofold, I didn't mean 2x. I meant bidirectional. I meant. Oh, 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 oh yes. I meant yes, sure, if sure. I'm wearing a mask, yeah. what the study could have studied, but it's a different question, is are the people around that person mm -hmm. less likely to get it? Oh, yeah. Versus. If I'm wearing a mask, am I less likely to get it? And I, by the way, I think the evidence, forget this study, I think there's been lots of studies on this. I think if you meta-analyze, this is one way to, of course, give you greater precision. If you were to analyze all of the studies in totality, I think there would be a, an effect size where masks are shown to protect the wearer. Right. So, I mean, let's, let's, let's emphasize a little bit more because my understanding is that this study had a couple of other flaws. One, they were randomized in the mask outside. It wasn't an inside thing. And, and we're mm -hmm. virtually certain that almost all um, communication of this disease happens inside. And so it's really weird. It's really weird looking for effects of mask when it's about wearing mask outside. The second issue is that the incidence of this disease is really low and the error rate in this test was relatively high. It's actually bigger than the incidence. Mm -hmm. So I forget whether it's specificity or sensitivity, but mm -hmm. one of them was like 90%, which is, I don't know, 10 times the prevalence mm -hmm. of the disease. And so you just can't reach any conclusions when you're measuring with that kind of error, something that is that rare. Well, this is, your, this is the point I was going to make, which was, you know, this was one of the largest, maybe semi, but surprising, but not to statisticians finding that came out in marketing years ago. So what, in my field of marketing, what's the one thing people talk about? What about al algorithms to better serve ads so that click rates go up? But Adi, these numbers are going to start to sound familiar. What's the standard click rate on ads? It's about one-tenth of one percent, 0.1 percent. Then when ads are really served effectively, this is your math from earlier today off air, 0.15 percent, 50 percent more. But then there was a study by uh, Randall Lewis and Justin Rao who are running Yahoo ad serving that you needed hundreds of millions of ads in an A-B experiment to actually detect something of that size. Wow. So you notice when AstraZeneca or Moderna runs a study of 40,000 people, are like, wow, 40,000. Yeah, but that's not the relevant number. It's how many people get the disease amongst those numbers. And since it's a low prevalence rate, you need a much larger sample size than you think you do. And this has been now kind of known in the ad testing world. You need tens of millions of ads to show an effect of a treatment. Thank goodness our public policy over the last few months has been oriented towards getting those sample sizes up a little bit higher by increasing the prevalence. <laughs> yeah, there you go. True to brand. Yeah, true to brand. Yeah. So we guys, we have completely trashed this article 
We yet have. it was published and it made all kinds of headlines and spurred. Right. How is it that the how is it that the academic process produces this kind of article if it has this many fundamental flaws in it? Yeah, I, I, mean, I respond to that two ways. First of all, I I want to see the results. Um, the problem is not the academic publishing of the result because they deserve to be known. I mean, they did the experiment. It had some issues. It, it produced a result. We see it. The problem is, is, is the reception that it gets more, more widely and the, that somehow we've improved knowledge. That should have been, this should have been out there, communicated, and just retired. Um, instead, it, it, it takes on a life of its own, which is, which is in many of these COVID-type works have gotten this way. And they're often very, very misleading. Well, and, and I think it's partly, I mean, partly that's the science, you know, flaws and maybe the execution mm-hmm. of the scientific method. But I think it's 90% of that is both in COVID times and outside of COVID times, kind of the way the media takes an art, like yeah. a scientific article. It's, it's, it's kind of in, in the reporting and post kind of publishing discussion of the results that, you know, I mean, media kind of, you know, media articles about scientific research are not do not typically properly kind of express the uncertainty or, you know, anything else in, in results. They want to kind of focus on like more, more certain statements. Well, let, let's, talk, let's talk about typically. the good news in new, in new uh, COVID results. The Regeneron uh, immuno monoclonal antibody got its approval, its emergency approval. Okay. It's um, effect size, not only is statistically significant, but looks really large. It's uh, 3% versus 9% in a randomized, double-blind, controlled study of about 400 in each arm. 3% of 9% what? Of recovery rate? No, no, 3%. So what they were looking at, remember, they usually, although they look at a pretty broad spectrum of society, they're generally looking at the healthier side of the world because because they're giving them, them essentially an untested drug. So 40% of the, I think, the recipients were, were considered senior or at risk. But they took 400 in each arm, so 400 in the control group, 400 in the experimental group. The control group got a placebo. The one in the, in the, in the experimental group got this monoclonal antibody by Regeneron. And 9% in the, in the treatment, in the, control, in the control group, ended up um, seeking hospitalization or emergency, uh, emergency care. And 3% in, did in the treatment group. So just to be clear, Adi, these were people that were already infected so no, 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 no. Is this a vaccine yes. or is this a treatment? No, it's not a vaccine. Not a, it's a treatment. So everybody has to have a positive test. Oh, they're they're identified okay. as having COVID. And now they are they are given a treatment on an outpatient basis. And yeah, this was the treatment given to President Trump. This yes, it was. General was. was the treatment given right. to him. He tested positive. He already had more than potentially moderate symptoms at that yes, time. Yes, that's right. And so this is, so what you're talking about is a big deal because Adi, big deal. you pointed out, we can talk about 95% from Astrogas, from you know the Moderna, the Pfizer, et cetera, except it might be four to six months before many of us That's get right. it. There could be four or five more million people plus with getting COVID. And so we need treatments for people that have it just as much as we need vaccines. Absolutely. Okay, guys, we, were just, we were just trashing this previous article for making a big deal out of small effects on rare events with small under, underpowered samples. Bring some of that logic and walk me through what you just described was 400 per arm yep. and 3% versus 9%. So to what extent? So just, uh, uh, just kind of so give, give you the numbers. So of the 400, 12 in, the, in, the, in the, the drug group, the treatment group, ended up hospitalized. And yep. 30, so it's three times that. So 36 yep. uh, in, the, in the placebo group, 12 versus 36 mm-hmm. uh, out of equally sized um, group. So it's, 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 so it's rare for people to get hospitalized. But what this has done is cut that by a factor of three. 
Um, and that's great. Now, ultimately, doesn't necessarily know whether or not once you're hospitalized, does that mean your death rates are appropriately lower as well? There's a lot of still a lot of uncertainties. But if you just translate that out as to a thinning of the of the very sick level, that has a huge impact on survival, which brings it down to a, a much you know much more much lower rates than they than they were certainly when we started. Yeah, I was just going to bring up the point that you know. Um... What is small? In other words, I just brought up this example of click rates on ads where you need potentially tens of millions. Remember, that was 0.1%. Mm. Adi's talking about something 30, 50, 100 times larger in mm-hmm. terms of its prevalence. 0.1% is much different than 5%, 6%. <laughs> and sample size change dramatically when you take the base rate from 0.1% to 50 times larger than that to 5%, 6% in that way. So that's why you don't need tens of millions. You know, in some sense, hundreds can do it in that sense. Good, good. All right, other good news. What about this Oxford study? So this is now the third study to report some um, pretty good um, success rates. Are you guys up to speed on this? There's this there's this weird nuance about the dosage, and they kind of happened on some weird dosage. I haven't sorted those details. It's interesting. It sounds like they may have learned something kind of accidentally. But the bigger picture story is that we have a third trial that is looking in the 90% success rate, I think. I'll fill in the issue. It's, it turned out to be serendipitous. They underdosed by a half, and then they decided that, that, that they should go to what they thought was the proper dose, and they went to, and they went to the full dose. Three quarters of the of the enrolled subjects were at the full dose, and about one quarter or so were at this lighter dose, half and then a full. And what they noticed is the people on the lighter dose, up they ended up um, a ninety percent effective rate, and those in the full dose were in a sixty percent. And oh, I find that to be sh- so much. Uh, I, I'm very mystified by what that means no, and what, what Adi, we should. Wait, 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 wait. I, I got to ask you a question. There's, <laughs> uh, so let's say right now, given that data. I gave you three choices of which would be the most effective, okay? Full, full, half full, or half-half. Oh, let's be clear. Let's be clear. We're talking about a two-dose regimen. Right, okay? a so two-dose like regimen. a two-dose regimen here. So you're talking about yeah. the sequence, the amount in each of the states. Right, and so the two that were tried accidentally were full-full and half-full. You can't tell me that half-full is going to do better than full full in general. You have to mean that half half is the best because why would half full, like what is the science that would say half full is gonna do better than full full? I can understand why half half would be better than all of them. Well, so hold on. I don't know enough about like booster shots. What does the booster shot do that the initial shot doesn't do? But then also, why, what is the science about, even give us the first intuition, why a half dose might be more effective than a full dose? Well, I don't have that intuition. I mean, well, I, I don't have it either. I mean, you know, if it's equally efficient, but you know, to the extent that there's any kind of side effects or detrimental kind of okay. effects to it, if you can get the same efficiency out of okay. a half dose with presumably there would be less side effects. I mean, again, okay, we're so all making side effects. Related. Related. I, I think it's theoretically why you might prefer a half potentially dose. different than that, Shane. Here's what I mean by that. Suppose someone told you right now that whichever vaccine you get an opportunity to take. And by the way, I have no idea. Like they did now mention there's the Moderna one. There's the Pfizer one. Like, am I going to get a choice? But let's ignore that for a second. If someone told you you'll live, but you can get a five times dosage 
but you'll be sick with the flu for a week, but it'll make it a lot more effective. I think most people might do that. Now, the issue to me is, I think the heavy dosage, it's not about the side effects like you're going to get a fever, your arm's going to hurt. I think it could affect the effectiveness of the drug. In other words, there's an inverted U shape where, for example, it could start killing the cells that are actually fighting the the infection. It could start killing healthy cells and things that you need to fight the COVID infection. So I don't think it's just, oh my God, I'm so worried about getting a fever or an upset stomach or a headache. I think there's an inverted U shape where you can't just give somebody, because why not just in general? Yeah, like so so generally you're- you're arguing that it could be nonlinear, essentially, that the kind of your and it turns response down. is nonlinear. Yeah. yeah. yeah I love that. What, what bothers me is that we're storytelling. They did not intend to give a half dose. That's right. something that they revised. And then they noticed afterwards that it was much more effective. And now they're trying to tell a story afterwards to explain what they observed. I am yeah. very suspicious that they're going to get a 90% effective rate like they saw in the Moderna and, okay. in, the, and in the other vaccine. I think okay. it'll be closer to 70 yeah, yeah, right. Okay, good, good regressive. This is Adi reminding us to regress those forecasts, especially whenever we have this kind of uncertainty, and they definitely had some uncertainty around their protocol. Fellas, one of the things that jumped out to me, we've talked a lot about the you know, vaccines and the rolling out and how, you know, as we move into the next stage, the, the analytics we're going to be talking about are the rolling out these vaccines. It's a whole new world. We've, we, revit, we, we saw a few months ago that the super forecasters, these, some of these guys that Phil Tetlock, our colleague Phil Tetlock, runs in his forecasting tournament. They have been tracking when people believe the vaccine will be available, and they make that very specific. They mean when you can inoculate 25 million people in the U.S. So when will that happen? We'll have enough distributed to inoculate 25 million people in the United States. Now, note that's not that big a number, right? It means the beginning of it, but it's not that big a number. But that's been the way it's been specified from the very beginning. And they've given four different windows. They've given four different six-month windows from back in April. They started this forecasting tournament back in April. And the interesting feature of these data is that here in the middle of November, the, the, the two leading contenders were the next six months between October 2020 and April 2021 and the following six months. So those two six months were kind of equal contenders right at 50-50. And then, bam, with these new results that we've been seeing from the drug companies, the near window, the next six months has jumped up to 90 and now to like 95, 96% that people believe that in the next six months, and, and this is, it's nice when you look at this, you trace this record back to April when they first started this tournament, that window, that near window was always the nearest window. And it was always seen as the least likely when they first started this, it was in single digits. And so it just, it's just putting to objective numbers this thing that we've kind of observed, which is this is actually turning out better than expected and dramatically so. Well, this makes me also think back to the thing I just brought up a second ago, which is when they say inoculate also, like with which drug? Like suppose someone said to you the following, um, you can get this Oxford drug that might have 90% effectiveness or 70% effective, but because you're, uh, Shane, you're the young, you're a young person, you're in tier three, you can have Oxford now, but- if you take Oxford now, you don't get Moderna or Pfizer for a year because you've been inoculated, but understand it could be much worse. Or you could wait six months and have one of these other two. What do you think? First of all, what would this, what would any individual do? Like, you know, this is the classic, you know, uh, risky choice option. You can have the least effect, lesser effective option now, or you can wait for the better option in the future. Is that, I mean, is that what's going to happen? 
Maybe. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I don't I don't think I'm going to be given quite as much choice in the process as, as, as that. But perhaps um, I and, and, and I mean, I guess in that's I mean, for me personally, again, I, I, I think, you know, I, I'm more concerned about the society than myself, I guess. And that's not because I'm particularly, you know, sacrificial, but because, you know, I think society has uh, a lot more uh you know, to lose by delay. So, you know, even if it is only like, if it, even if it is a little bit less um, effective of a vaccine, getting it out quicker to people, this less effective vaccine, I think is probably the favorable you, move. You know, right? the, the, the tip of the, the problem is, is that we don't know about these uh, uh, mRNA viruses, uh, vaccines, and we don't know what kind of effects they're going to have if they're given to millions of people. So if I were to take one and not, wor- and not worry about any long-term effects, I'd want the regular adenovirus. That's mm-hmm. the Oxford one. That's the way they always work. I know it's not going to kill me in the long run. It might not be as effective <laughs> fundamentally, but it might be the safer bet if you're worried about sort of uh, you know, weird side effects. Yeah. If you're, one thing we haven't talked about, which is very interesting, I'd be more likely to take the Oxford one if I knew everyone else did too. Because remember, yeah, I want immunity. to fight it from two ways. I want <laughs> yeah. my body to fight it, and I want your body to fight it, and then not give it to me. And yep. so, matter of fact, I'd be thrilled if tons of other people take the mRNA one, mRNA one, which you know it could be more effective in the short run. Because to be honest with you, that means I get to take the less risky, safer, possibly less effective one. Although, mm-hmm. let me put it to you straight. I mean, and this is something that's on the table that you might know more. That you know, it's still talked about that I might be in the classroom at least partially in the spring with a small oh, class. Yeah. Yes, I'm going to be allowed to go into the classroom and someone gives me these three vaccines in front of me. Say, Professor, you're you're about to do a risky activity. You're going to be with a bunch of 20 somethings who we don't know where they've been. um, And you're going to be in the same room with them. Which of these three do you want? I'm going for the 95 and I'm going for it full. You know, that's it. Because is that I, what's going to happen is when we show up in March? Honey? <laughs> we're, going to, we're going to roll up our sleeves and get the shots. Um, yes, guys, I think this, so. It, it could be on, on this front. And before we go into break, one last word on, on Thanksgiving. I'm curious. We've played this game before, but like, what are your Thanksgiving practices? And I want to point to a New York Times article, which is not telling us anything we didn't know. But I love that this was an article front page making it clear. The headline was no a negative coronavirus test does not mean you can safe, safely socialize. My worry is that a bunch of people are going to go run out, get a test, get negative and say, okay, I can go see grandma for Thanksgiving. And we know that that's a good recipe for an asymptomatic person to spread. I think that's a second order worry. I think the first order worry is most people are not going to get tested either because the testing lineups right now are like two hours long. Fair enough. Or they're Fair. being told not to get tested because, you know, all right, We've so, got testing lines that are two hours long. Let, let, me, let me respond to that because I read the full article and that article was two articles in one. One article was the fear article. was saying, this doesn't work, don't worry. The second half of it, Began beginning with Anthony Fauci saying, but, you know, you got to you got to live a life. And the goal is to keep your risk low, not zero. And they went exactly the opposite direction in the back end, saying that while testing isn't perfect, it's a hell of a lot better than nothing. And there's ways to use testing that's practical, including uh, uh, they quoted a Yale epidemiologist who has an interesting study that shows that um, a very effective way to use t- is t- testing is quarantine yourself first, then test. And that's actually very, very good because you'll have the opportunity to and you don't need to do it for that long. He says that seven days is plenty and you can get a really good uh, and accurate estimate of your own personal 
a transmission rate. And they, they had some actual data in the army where they did just this. And they actually compared three different groups. It's definitely a study worth reading. So the, my, and this is, I'll just tell you, this is what our family's doing. We're meeting with 25% of our normal size, just to my sisters. I, I have three sisters, two are off in Boston with each other. And I'm going to be with my, my, with my, uh, my other sister in Brooklyn and all the elderly relatives are, well, we don't have very many left. None of them are coming. Um, so it's m- mostly young people. You, you are the, you are the, I am the oldest by the way. You know, we are, we are the old generation now. It's pretty hard to, to suck that up, but we all, and so what we've all done has gotten, we've all been uh, isolated since basically middle of last week. Um, I got my test yesterday. haven't gotten the results back, but I'm expecting them soon. Um, Lisa just got hers back. My daughter. Why does got, this seem like a shock? Isolation plus yeah. testing. Is okay. it very good? Pro- okay, good. good. So it's not a shock. I just want to say two things about it. One, um, so great. I agree with what Fauci's saying, but we know that people can be too confident and yes, they can be. with right. the test. So it, it emboldens people, I think, in, in an unfortunate way. But you said isolate quarantine two days before the test. It no, would I'm work doing more than that, well. but you got to do yeah. at least two. You probably should do it four would work five. To quarantine for two days after the test as well. Right. That's there's kind of a window. Yeah, no, I, I think Adi's point is more that I mean, we I, I think a lot of people's kind of, you know, logic would be, well, I'll get a test and I'll quarantine afterwards so that when the test shows I'm negative, I know that I've stayed yeah, negative. That's right. That's for good. that time. Right. It's yeah. just that you, I, you, what we really should be doing ideally is quarantine also for like before, four or five yeah, days before, before so that you know yeah. that you're truly negative. Be, you have to do it before. with that lag. You need, you know? so, you need it. So, uh, they, they produce two different effects. And then finally, exactly. and this is going to seem really obvious, but I just want to say it. If you have symptoms, don't go out. <laughs> yeah, this, that's yeah. <laughs> but I really like to be. But you've given us a very clear recommendation. So don't back away from testing, but quarantine ahead of time to ensure the accuracy or to increase the accuracy of that test. And then you can be more confident that the mixing is okay. All right, guys, that's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. It's our usual coronavirus quarter. We've got sports straight ahead and through. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, virtual edition. Whole crew is here. Cade Massey hosting with my longtime collaborators, faculty, buddies, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. Rolling into the second quarter now. We've talked a fair bit about coronavirus. Let's talk about sports, guys. By the way, you guys can reach out to us at Twitter, at WMoneyball is a way to reach us on Twitter, easiest way to get us. We also have an email address these days, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. You can reach out by email, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Try to pick up a mailbag question from you on occasion. Gentlemen, the college football season is heating up. I tried to sell you on it last weekend or last week. I think the weekend kind of bore me out. It was a fun one. Is anybody paying attention yet? I'm happy to walk this through myself, but have y'all have y'all warmed up to college football yet? Because they're going to announce the first playoffs ranking tonight. This is we're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. The inaugural um, ranking comes out tonight. Of course, that's going to wind down for the next four or five weeks until the end of the season. But where are you guys on college football? I've been kind of enjoying it. I, I've been I've been enjoying this sort of like the, the Big Ten specifically has had a couple sort of surprise teams that I think make it sort of entertaining. I mean, it looks like Ohio For State sure. is still dominant and I, I doubt it's going to impact like, you know, play the playoff situation or anything like that. But having both Indiana and Northwestern be, you know, yeah. these kind of really kind of contending teams and, you know, some some kind of stroke. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not going to take 
you know, any enjoyment out of like Penn State being 0-5, not that, but, but, you know, some of, some of these sort of like, you know, kind of mainstays in the Big Ten struggling and the rise of these kind of, you know, typically, you know, kind of lesser programs has been pretty entertaining part yeah, of the well, season. Look, we, we, we've done a lot of whinging about college football being too chalky lately. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, we're going to enjoy some non-chalk. And, and you know, Alabama's still up there. Clemson's still up there. Ohio State's still up there. But everything else is a little bit, not everything else, but a lot of other is, is different. So Indiana fell behind big with Ohio State and then came back and gave them a scare. And they had their chances. I mean, it's amazing to think that they did have their chances there. Um, on the other side, Northwestern got past Wisconsin. And Northwestern is the undefeated leader in the West. They now are scheduled, if they can hold on to it, they're scheduled to um, meet Ohio State. If they, I mean, we're weeks away from this, but right now it looks like they would meet Ohio State in the Big Ten Championship. You know, I, I generally have very little to add in college football, but I do recall about four or five years ago interviewing the Northwestern, uh, someone at the Northwestern football team, maybe even an undergraduate who had built a recruiting model for them. So I wonder whether or not this is the, the, rec- the fruits of that mo- uh, model in place uh, being put to, 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 uh, and you know, bearing fruits, I guess. We should find out. We should find out. we you know, these, they, they do, this is something that happens in college, college sports is that the analytics efforts are usually kind of, um, yeah, they're, they're kind of skunk works and volunteer and they're student run. That's often yeah. what happens with, with right. a number of different sports around colleges. I know that's, I mean, heck huddle, the entire organization, wildly globally successful organization huddle got started as a student run project out of the Nebraska football program. You think like I watched actually a lot of the Northwestern game. I also watched a lot of the uh, Ohio State game as well. Do we have any belief that, you know, Indiana almost beating Ohio State and they had chances, Northwestern beating Wisconsin? Like, are we, do you think we'll start when we look back on this period, start to build a body of evidence saying maybe, maybe the COVID period, maybe the lack of a real offseason, maybe the lack of training has kind of leveled the playing field? Like, it's kind of, you know, all the teams now we've added error variants. And so this gives a greater chance for the weaker teams. You know, the image I have in mind isn't the leveling. It's a, it's a furrowing. Like there's, the ground's been disrupted and some teams have been popped up and some teams have been rocked down. And so there's much less predictability about it, but I, I don't get the sense that they're all on even playing ground. You know, it's like, some organizations have really come together and, and, and they're excelling. And some organizations are the exact opposite. It is super interesting. But I, but I agree with your intuition that the COVID is playing a role in how things are a little bit different. Of course, it's again, it's different through the meat of the order, not at the top, right? At the top, we have this, we have this mm-hmm. concentration at the top. And it just seems to be continuing that way, unfortunately. But real quickly, before we leave Northwestern, did y'all catch this Reese Davis story on Northwestern? So, Pat Fitzgerald, the head coach of the, the Northwestern football team, comes off and on field after the game, he goes on a tyrant tirade about how his team was underappreciated. And it turned, it goes back to the college football playoff show on ESPN. The previous, it wasn't the official ranking, but they had their first show. And it was Reese Davis and Joey Galloway. And, and, and Joey Galloway jumps over the Northwestern Wildcats. He says, oh, this team, I don't really believe in them yet. He says, they look like they have a bunch of Reese Davises running down there on the field. <laughs> So what he's saying is, you know, poor Reese Davis, he's the one non-former college football player on the show, right? But, and so he's, he's, he's maligning the athleticism of the Northwestern team. So they use this as bulletin board material and they, they call themselves the fighting Reese Davises. And <laughs> Pat, Fitzgerald, Pat Fitzgerald goes to the mat on it, 
right after. And then he talks about it in his press conference. So I think we need to celebrate that for yeah. a couple of reasons. One, we're non-college football playing people, but also Reese Davis was one of our all-time favorite interviews from a couple of years ago. And that guy lives and breathes college football. He's from Louisiana, has been from the very beginning. And um, I think he's all taking this with a good spirit, but it's hugely. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if, if becoming like a college football team's mascot was on his bucket list, but he can cross that <laughs> off now. I mean, <laughs> the perfect team, that's right? pretty fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I also think, I also think Northwestern doing well and not Wisconsin raises the possibility of no big Ted team making it. Let me get, let me just throw out a scenario. Northwestern could lose to one of the three games they have left, but they'll still go to the Big Ten championship game. Northwestern beats Ohio State in that game. A one-loss Northwestern going to the college football playoffs? I'm not so I'm not so believing that. So I could now see a possibility because an undefeated Wisconsin playing an undefeated Ohio State, trust me, the winner of that game is going to the college football playoff. But I'm not so confident that now the Big Ten is going to have any team. Matter of fact, I'd be interested well, in knowing just the probability now of any Big Ten team going to the college football playoffs. It had to have gone down by Northwestern beating Wisconsin, or well, it should have. Well, but, you know, let, 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 let's say like Northwestern beats Ohio State. Ohio State would only have like one loss in this scenario. I, I mean, is it really that much less likely that Ohio State I guess what I'm arguing no, no. is if Ohio State, Ohio State, Ohio State's definitely not going. Well, Eric, I can tell you what FBI's playoff predictor is. So FBI, we've been talking about this a little bit. They've been running a simulator based on FBI's power rankings, which is a that's a good model. We've always been supportive of FBI. They still give it almost a hundred percent that somebody out of Ohio, somebody out of the Big Ten is going to go. So it's down to like ninety five. Now most of that's on Ohio State, but. They, they give Ohio State 71%. They give Northwestern 14%. They give Wisconsin 9%. And so you're still almost up to Indiana. I, I, I don't know about their, enough about their simulator or whatever. Can you, that doesn't kind of break down by their percent, their percent as undefeated versus as a one-loss team. They've, they've got it, but they're not reporting it to us. Gotcha. So gotcha. That is something that I want to I check with you guys. Um, well, well, let's come back to that, but I'm curious. They have the chance of winning. And I want to revisit you. We had a, we, we got a question teed up to us on Twitter on the chance of Alabama winning. But real quickly, before, let's just make another quick spin around the league from this past week. Eric, you still got Cincy undefeated, so the group of five dream well, so lives. See, so that's also my point. I think the chances of them, given it's a shorter season, while there's less data and there's less cross-conference games, if there was ever going to be a year where a non-Power 5 school that was undefeated would go instead of a one loss, to Shane's point, well, Ohio State would still have one loss. Wouldn't you take them? So you would take them over an undefeated Cincinnati? I mean, it, it, it kind of, in, this, in this scenario, it depends how that Northwestern, that loss happened. Like if it was like a, an epic overtime battle that Ohio State happened to lose to Northwestern, I feel like they would still be in contention right. for that playoff spot. Right. If they get embarrassed by Northwestern or if that's their second loss by then. In that scenario, you would take both Northwestern and Ohio State, right? No. Northwestern. Wait, Northwestern beats Ohio State and it's a double, triple overtime game and you take Ohio State over Northwestern? Yes. 
Oh, come on. No, <laughs> no. I, wait, wait, wait. Do I, I mean, if I'm on the college committee and I'm emulating past college committee practices. Yeah. I mean, because again, it's, it's, it's this, we've discussed this every year. It's, it's a balance of the actual on-field accomplishments versus who they actually think is the better. I team. will make, I will make anybody on our show a 10 to one odds that that would never happen. All right, so these we're playing we're playing in the era term right now. So we'll we've got a few other things to put into place. One, for example, what's going to happen out of the Pac-12? So Oregon has got some people's eye. They're still undefeated. Of course, they have to win the North and then win the championship. But if they came through undefeated, you've got like a seven and zero Oregon versus a what is it ten and zero Cincinnati. That's a fair debate. And um, I, I would like to see Group of Five make it one of these years. I agree this is one of its better chances, but if you're pulling for that, you might want to see Oregon tripped up at some point. On the playoff front, um, currently FBI gives Alabama a 54% chance of winning the whole thing. So Mike Bird on Twitter, he goes by at Birdie Word. Mike Bird says, hey, you guys, uh, you like FBI and you like betting the field. So here's a good 50-50 bet for you. You want Alabama or do you want the field? Alabama or the field on winning the national championship this year, guys? The field. The field. <laughs> yes, make the argument for the field because these guys say it's slightly the other way. So this is to argument. win it all? What's that? Yeah. This is to, win, to it all. win it all. I mean, I mean, even, even if we lock Alabama, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I'm basically 100% on Alabama being in that college football playoff. They still have to play two games. Yeah. You know, and, and so again, and what the odds for, for them to be at like 50% overall, the odds in each of those games has to be, you know, upwards 75, 80%. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't give them that against the, the top teams that they'll be facing off against. Yeah. I mean, Shane, you just pointed out the basic math. Let's pretend they had a hundred percent to make the final four. Yeah. You're saying they're more than 0. 0.7, 0. 0.7 against the two teams that they would be playing. That's hard to believe. Some people are arguing that it's not a big three. This is something Bill Connolly is beginning. To, I think it was Bill that said this. No, no, no. It, maybe it was a Stuart Mandel comment. Not a big three so much as maybe it's Alabama and then a big gap to the next two because they have looked pretty good. My concern with these kinds of convictions this early in the season is what about injuries? Mm-hmm. I mean, teams, teams change over a three or four week period of time. What if they lose their quarterback? What if they lose a couple of those wideouts? Well, if they have um, like some big COVID wave right before like an important game. Well, that's a great point, Shane, because you know? I would have been saying this last year. Now we've got this whole other source of uncertainty. Right. I mean, okay, I think you've just put the final nail in this coffin. So we're strongly, thank you for the question, Mark, Mike Wood, Mr. Mike Wood at Birdie Wood. We're strongly on the field. We're always on the field. We love the field, but in this case, it's not even, it doesn't even sound like it's close to us. Um Let's look forward. This is Thanksgiving week. We've got a few fun games to consider. This is rivalry week. And so we usually see a lot of games, not quite as much fun this year. So for example, Washington and Washington state, the apple cup canceled for COVID. It's very sad. Big games are Auburn and Alabama, the iron bowl. You know what the line on that thing is speaking of Alabama being dominant. It's gotta be close to two touchdowns. 21, 21, more than that. That Unbelievable. Oh my goodness. Um, The Harvard Yale game isn't happening this year. I don't know what to do. Is that right? Harvard (laughs) Yale. You don't know what to do with yourself. Let me give you a couple other words. Notre Dame is going into UNC. It's Notre Dame's probably, you know, their second toughest game of the regular season. It's only a four and a half point line. UNC has not been quite what we thought they might be this year, but there's still strong tests for those guys. Um, for those of you who might pay, no one's paying attention to the Big 12 because they everybody played themselves out of this. But Iowa State and Texas are kind of playing an elimination game. 
for the championship. OU beat Oklahoma State last weekend, put themselves in good position to make the Big 12 championship. On the other side, very likely to be either Iowa State or Texas if one of those guys can win out. So big game, that's on Friday. And then if you're looking at the Blue Blood saga, the sad Blue Blood saga in the Big 10, Penn State at Michigan. If that, you know, that was such a sad thing. That's, that's not a great game. You know, that'd be a great yeah. note in November, Thanksgiving weekend. Um, it is supposed to be a close game, three and a half points, but it's a little bit sad. Eric, um, are, are, are your Cincinnati Bearcats going to get tested by Temple? I see that on the schedule. I don't think so. <laughs> I, I would wonder at the line on that game as well. <laughs> no, it's absurd. It's it's way above twenty, I believe, if I've seen if I remember correctly. I mean, Temple's not not doing what they were a couple of years ago. All right, guys, that's college football. Uh, we have a few minutes left in this quarter. We'll hold off on NFL for the third quarter. But what else in the world of sports? has had your attention lately. Well, I'll just talk briefly about the NBA, which by the way, it's, this is shocking to believe guys. It's starting again in less than a month. I don't mean no, the preseason. I mean the actual regular season and the actual <laughs> games are starting in less than a month. So how does that compare to people that play in the Olympics every four years? They talk about the long grind, you know, they play. Well, here's the what I can season. tell you. I saw, I, yeah, I saw this announced um, at least for the four major sports. I can't talk about the Olympics. Well, for the four major sports, by far, this is the shortest offseason there's ever been. And it's by almost 50%. I mean, from when the last game of the finals are until the first game of the regular season. There's no mm-hmm. question this is by far the shortest. And, of course, they've talked about, you know, LeBron might only play like a couple of the first 20 games. And, of course, why does it matter? Who cares? You know, all of that. <laughs> um, but the thing that struck me again is – We've gotten into a situation where the rich get richer, which is, you know, the Lakers, obviously the champs, have signed Mark Gasol. That's not bad. That's probably an upgrade over what they had before. They, they signed the sixth man of the year, Montrez Harrell. They traded for Dennis Schroeder. So in some sense, because people want to play with a winning team, I think we're going to see even greater polarization in the one loss records, like we're going to see a bunch of, you know, they're only playing 72 games, but we're going to see a bunch of teams well over 75%. And I think a team's well below 30% in their wins. So Eric, do you think that's accelerating or haven't we already seen that for a while? I mean, yeah, I'm kind of, I mean, I, I feel like it's, it, it's accelerating. I personally feel like it's accelerating. We're kind of going towards this sort of super team, constant kind of just sort of slowly rotating super team thing. But, but hold on, hold on, hold on. Why, why, what's the mechanism for acceleration? Because greater, greater, having... uh, greater player power in contract negotiations. Like why players can basically choose their team now, right? But hold on. We, but why is this? Because LeBron took his, you know, talents to South Beach how many years ago? That yeah. was a... no. I think, that... I think I think I think that was an example. And I think that that type of phenomenon is happening more and more often, you know, essentially, you know, so, so I, I, th- I think we're, we're going to see these kind of constant, you know, the super teams that like will coalesce for three, four years. Like it's just going to be an endless string of dynasties. I think kind of maybe COVID is sort of like, you know, perhaps produced an additional acceleration to that. I don't Why? know, but what, what has COVID done? Well, I, I think COVID is basically, um, you know, if, if anything, I think it's, it's, it's taken away um, a little bit of the evaluation, like, like, you know, these kind of like hidden strengths, sort of like teams that can try and like co- find hidden strengths and other in, 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 you know, the draft or like kind of can combat these super teams through like whatever kind of analytics type solution. They have like less data. 
to do that. Oh. You know, there, there, there's, there's less data. There's less kind of like, you know, opportunity. We don't, I mean, has the, has, yeah, I mean, cause there's usually that kind of independent league that's running at the same time. The NBA, is that running this year even? I don't know the answer. What, the to that. G, you mean the G league? Yeah. I would assume it's going to run, but I don't know. This year, Did it run last run year. Past, yeah. There may be fewer games. There's less college, college. Are we, even gonna, are, are we getting a college basketball season? We are going to have one, but we, we had interrupted one last year. Yeah. Um, well, it is an interesting phenomenon, and um, I mean, I, is it is it more palatable because it's not the same teams? I mean, we have super teams still. We have a we have all the probabilities stacked up in just a couple of places, but it's not the same. I mean, it's place. always kind of. I mean, I mean, I don't think I, when I say it's sort of because I, I, I mean, I think it has. I think there are you know the player the extra player power does I think make it even more you know, common, but it, it basketball has kind of always been like that. I, I think it's mostly an aspect of just, you know, that there's only five players on the floor to why, you know, the impact of the superstars in this sport is just that much more impactful. Than, like, any we're, other. we're referring to the Western conference, the Eastern conference are a bunch of mediocre teams. Whoever gets out of there <laughs> is going to get beaten by the Western conference team in the finals anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, right. I mean, and, and, you know, but like, you know, like five years from now, maybe like the New York Knicks are the super team because all the stars have decided to go there. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I think it, it, at least, it at least does re- rotate around a little bit more than it did back in the 60s when Boston won like 10 of 11 championships or whatever. Well, um, but know, it, the, player, the player influence is interesting because I did see a comment that Deshaun Watson down in Houston, the quarterback for the Texans, was consulted on who they should hire as the new GM. Yeah. And so, I mean, it, 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 I, I share your intuition that player um, influence among the very best players is more than it used to be, but I'm not entirely sure why that is. I think it's an interesting dynamic and uh, it'd be helpful to understand why that has moved that way. Um, what else, gentlemen? Do you, I mean, does it, how much does it handicap Daryl Morey that, that he has such a short off season in Philadelphia, his first off season? I mean, he seems to have made a couple of moves that I would have done. I, I love that he dumped Al Horford's big contract. Who would have thought anybody would take him for any amount of money or who cares what the <laughs> other team had to give up? So that's that was obviously a big plus. He dumped Richardson uh, for, again, he got rid of like $40 million of salary cap money. And so um, I think he's improved this shooting. Uh, on the team, basically it's going to be Simmons and Bede and a bunch of guys that can shoot threes and play a little mm-hmm. defense. So mm-hmm. I, I think he's gone with his strategy, which is you're not getting rid of Simmons. He can't shoot threes, but everyone else on the team is going to be able to shoot threes and play defense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can, I can argue either way with this because, you know, I agree. He, he, you know, I, I think he might be different, you know, kind of differentially disadvantaged by the short off season, just because the Sixers is a organization that needs a lot of overhaul. Like they, they're actually, it seems like there's a lot of work to kind of be done to fix this team. Basically at the same time, you could counter argue that, you know, everybody realizes COVID times are kind of crazy and all this type of stuff. Maybe there'll be a little bit more organizational patience that if he doesn't, Produce, you, you know, than he would have otherwise had. You know, like nobody's going to basically after this yeah. season, after they presumably don't aren't as improved as people would like them to be, there might be a little bit more patience because of COVID for that kind of. Uh, I've wondered about that, and people talk about it with college football. I mean, you know, this is also coaching carousel season, and so many coaches are on the hot seat. One Power Five coach has already lost his job, but do you cut a guy more slack because of what's been going on this year? And it goes back to Eric's observation that everything's just more 
uh, unpredictable this year, does that mean we should be slower to react to and less data, less, less games, less games kind of like under, you know, quote unquote, normal circumstances, et cetera. Yeah. I I have a comment to respond to Eric uh, earlier is, uh, and and also with Daryl Morey's transition here, are Simmons and Embiid good enough to build a team around? Are they superstars of that stature? Yes. Embiid. Yes. Embiid. Certainly. Embiid for sure. Um, Simmons, in let me say it's that I, I actually heard. So when Simmons is on the floor, the other players on the team, the Sixers are a top two team in the NBA in three point shooting, mm-hmm. because of what this the, the space he creates and he's driving to the basket, and then he's a good passer. He actually creates better three point shots for other players. So yes, and I think defensively, he's I think he's ranked. I know he's ranked in the top five in the NBA. So yes, the two of them are good enough to build a team around. But remember Eric Bradlow's theory: <laughs> the best man on your team is your center. You will lose lots of games at the end of the game because you can't get the center the ball. And so someone on that team, whether, you know, in the old days it was J.J. Redick or Jimmy yeah. Butler, for someone's got to have the ball in their hand that's not, and Simmons can't shoot, so it can't be the <laughs> two of them. That's Yeah, the- no, and I, I mean, just to follow up on that, I completely agree with that with, with that take. I, I think Simmons, Simmons, if, if we had the kind of analytics, like the publicly available analytics on space creation and these types of things, which of course mm. is coming soon, um, I think Simmons would look like a top five player in the NBA just on space creation, or top ten certainly. Geez, Shane, that's a big claim. Top Didn't ten. You, uh, pick top up, ten. The Sixers pick up Dwight Howard. What is his going to? Well, well but he's he, he does not help with this. Like they really need to. I think Simmons would be best. Uh, Simmons and B would be best complicated by like you know somebody like Redick, like a shooter, like a three point shooter who can take advantage of the space that's being created for them. Dwight Howard does not do that. No, but Darryl, Darryl has it. He, he brought him into Houston as well. We, we, should, we should find out more about where Maury's interest in Howard is. I know Eric likes the pick or the, or the signing. Um, you know, I, I, I would love to know what Daryl, you know, he's getting a fresh start here. He made a long run and pulled many levers over the years in Houston and never quite got there. I mean, got as close as you could get. And you could argue that, you know, at that level, it's just chance. And so we shouldn't be too hard on him. But I'd be curious to know what he learned. And now he wants to go about doing things differently, if at all, in Philadelphia. And, and you know, the league is different now than it was when he first got it going down there. He, he probably pointed the way in many, in, many, in many instances to other organizations. So it would be fascinating to know how he's thinking about doing things up here in Philadelphia and how that builds on what he learned in Houston. But it's funny about the NBA is where you remember trust the process started. Let's remember before the Sixers trusted the process, they were a playoff team. So if I asked you right now, are the Sixers good enough? Let's say it was an 82 game season, which it's not, but are they good enough to win 50 games? Oh, sure. Are they good enough to make the playoffs? Yes. Are they good enough to win a round? Yes. Are they good enough to win the title? Oh, of course not. And so <laughs> what's interesting is that we all project that they're good enough to be one of the top 10 teams in the NBA, just not one of the top three as they were constructed. So that's Mm -hmm. the challenge they face. And this gets to what we do as statisticians. They're good enough. I can predict they're good enough to be in the 70th, 80th, maybe even 90th percentile of teams. But what makes you a championship team is a different set of combinations and predictors that makes you a 50% or a 60 or an 80% team. So uh, again, the way the way basketball is kind of set up these days, uh, you could make an argument that what we need to do as a team organization is get to that, a, become that 85 percent team, 
and that will be enough to encourage LeBron James to sign with us. And that yeah, puts right. us in, and that makes us the super team. Or, That's you know, right. like the next the next LeBron James down down the pipeline type of thing. Like it's really you have to build an organization that seems winning enough to get that the 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 superstar that makes you the super team. It's a nice point. I mean, if we're connecting the, the conversation here, if players have that much influence, they want it, they want what? They want nice environment. Okay, so Philly may not quite win on that front, but they also want a championship probability. And Philadelphia could could deliver that if they could as you say, reach up reliably to that 85th percent. Um, you know, I'm always curious about what you get from just individual player contributions, picking the, you know, pulling the guys in for what they can do versus the way they fit together. And basketball is probably mostly, you know, the common, just the accumulation of the individual talents, but how much extra you get, how often a team actually outperforms the sum of its parts because they fit together in some particular way. And is that engineerable? It's one thing that it might happen. It's another thing that it might be anticipated and engineered ahead of time. All right, guys, that's been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here for this half hour with my co-hosts, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen, both from the Statistics Department. We also have a great fourth quarter where we're going to be talking to Joe Banner, former president of the Eagles and CEO of the Browns, talking about analytics and decision-making in football. So guys, um, we spent a lot of time today. We spent this first quarter talking about COVID. We spent the last time uh, quarter talking about college football, but we really didn't get to the way we commonly start the show, which is kind of what caught your eye in sports. So Adi, I know there's something about baseball that caught your eye. So, um, but what caught your guys' eye in sports this week? Yeah, so uh, definitely some baseball. We know Theo Epstein is uh, moving on and that is uh, remarkable. I mean, he's been, he's probably the world's greatest, you know, general manager. I think everyone agrees what he's done with Boston, what he's done with, with Chicago, but he has best curse breaker in the game. Certainly curse breaker for sure. But you know, if you believe in curses or momentum or anything like that, Um, but what he said was actually interesting in his sort of uh, uh, wistful way. He was talking about the declining entertainment value of baseball. Um, And it's hard to know. I mean, this is the baseball's death has always been prematurely declared um, as and the, 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 the culprit seems to be just a, a product that just isn't as much fun to watch as it once was. And one of the reasons he, Theo Epstein says, is something that he feels responsible for, which is the, the um, amazing attention played to the analytically best play, which has led to more home runs, more strikeouts, more pitching changes, more adjustment of the p- fielders in the, in, the, in the field, which means much lower bratting averages, far more um, kind of like wait, 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 boom, wait, 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 pop. And it, it doesn't have any of that kind of, um, if, you would, if you will, kind of cl- climax building a drama that we expect to see that, um, that we used to see more of in baseball. And also it's led to gigantically long games that are, that are you know, fully 30% longer than they once were. Do we so have any, do we have any evidence of that? Like, do we know like our base, our TV rate, we obviously can't talk about attendance, but like our TV ratings down or this year might not be the year to be able to tell because we're all starved for sports and any sports was coming back. Yeah, yeah. Gotten higher the, ratings. TV ratings were much higher than they ever were for the, for the world series. Um, particularly with small market, not that Los Angeles is a small market, but uh, certainly Tampa, you know, Tampa Bay is. Um, 
So, yeah. And I mean, I kind of like, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I, I guess I kind of agree a little bit. I mean, it, it, it would be nice to go back to a brand of baseball that actually kind of uses the field to play a little bit more <laughs> than just strikeouts and home runs. Um, I, I kind of wonder if actually part of, part of the problem isn't so much that, you know, the, that, that kind of going towards that type of gameplay, but it's that, you know, analytics has become so universally adopted that there's just kind of less, every team is trying to do that now. And there's just kind of less variety in gameplay across teams. Like, like, you know, in previous generations, like when Moneyball was first, you know, when Moneyball was written, the Oakland Athletics were already trying to do this kind of, you know, walk a lot, like, you know, hit home runs a lot, et cetera. But there was enough like variety amongst all the kind of teams that you still had teams that were doing small ball. You still had teams that are doing this and that. And do we kind of feel like, and this is something that presumably also could be, you know, quanti- oh, yeah, quantified, sure. is there less, is there less variance in, in kind of team construction and team kind of like, you know, I guess, I guess team strategy than there used to be. Well, that was going to be my question to you guys, which is, um, is there any reason why let's imagine every baseball game could be watched, whether it's in human or AI based. Is there any reason why every game, every day during the baseball season, we couldn't get a list. Maybe this list exists. Maybe you guys know this of violations in baseball of what the analytics says to do. And we could kind of keep a time series of violations in baseball and say, what type are they? How many are they? How much do they actually affect the win probability? Because, you know, by the way, when I say violations, I'm also saying, you know, oh, this is costing you this, but there's uncertainty around it too. So it, do you think we'll ever get to a day where there literally will be a website on violations in baseball, Adi? You know, you know I, I mean, it could be. I mean, if you think about it, there's analytics has played a huge role in baseball, but it's mostly played a role in deciding who to sign yeah, um, and what type of players to, to construct, team construction. It's played a, a big role in, in fielders, so the shifts, right, um, and, and, uh, and where the, the fielder should be placed. There has it's played a smaller role by getting rid of the stolen base, mostly by getting rid of the sacrifice bunt, um, by increasing. Um, you got to. I mean, I, this is something that I don't see happening. But you know, you got to try to score from from third, and when there's two outs, when you have the chance, is it's a very worthwhile move. There's a, a small handful of decision make decisions that you could pr- probably look analytically to decide whether or not the right thing. But I think analytics role is much more broad. The place that I would love to see some major, major advances in baseball, which would go a long way to fixing its problem, is to get the game back to two hours and 30 minutes, which is, Eric, that's the, that's the length of a game when we were kids, two yeah. hours and 30 minutes. And now it's three hours and 10 or three hours and five. Uh, and, and with the Yankees, they, they are way longer on average any, than, than other teams. And the only way to do that is to figure out what is the prime culprit and address it. And it's not six relievers. The prime culprit is, is a vast time between pitches. And Manfred threw out the idea of a pitch of a pitch clock, very much like football has a play clock, basketball has a shot clock, and tennis. And tennis. And the players, the, you know, Scherzer, he went ballistic. He's not going to stand for that. So the problem for me is there's an alternative that needs to be used in in baseball, which is instead of trying to to um, have a clock for the maximum time, have a clock for the average time. It's not enforced during a game, but it's enforced during the season. So you tell your team, and you can apportion it any way you like. Instead of going the average right now, they're averaging 22 seconds or 24 seconds between pitches. You got to get it down to 15 seconds, 14 seconds. Used to be 12, I think, between pitches. And maybe if Scherzer wants to take longer, fine. 
then you got to have guys on the other What's, end. What, 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 how do you make, I mean, I, I, I can see how to make it punitive in the game because you can just be like, oh, you didn't get the pitch off. That's now a ball. Yeah, that's right, right. How but, do you make this punitive well, at the team level challenge. across the but, season? But there are ways to punish teams that don't follow the rules. Let's, let's be creative. What would you do? Either way, we'll, we'll have plenty of baseball offseason to uh, talk yeah. about this, but it is really interesting about that. Um, Shane, anything caught your eye in sports? I know, Adi, it was about Well, I, I saw this thing. I, I saw Medvedev come across my kind of headline feed, and I kind of wanted to ask you about, uh, you know, so what's, what's kind of going on in tennis right now? So, Well, so I remember talking about this last week on our show that the ATP finals was upcoming. Just to remind all of you, this is, I don't want to call it the fifth major, but it's not a major, but the only people that get in are the top eight players based on points during the season. So there's no like, oh, I think this player is good. The top eight players make it. Uh, Daniel Medvedev, who was the number four player in the world, um, played in this tournament. He played Djokovic in the round robin phase. And I may have the score wrong, but I'm going to say roughly he beat Djokovic 6-2, 6-3. He then played um, Nadal, who he beat in three sets. And then he beat Theme in the finals. So, so he pulled off something that is, you know, I don't want to call it as rare as the, I don't know, the perfect game in baseball. But, I mean, he beat the numbers one, two, and three players in the world in the same tournament. And, by the way, two of them were the big three. Yeah. So it's not like he beat me and you, you know, Shane, you beat me and Adi. He beat two of the all-time greats and Theme, who had just won. By the way, Theme had just beaten Nadal. And so um, this was an incredible finding. And by the way, this is another consecutive tournament, and I'll keep bringing this up. Djokovic is starting to look like the bimodal Djokovic to me mm-hmm. now. You know, he was he's the last one of the three. He's the youngest of the big three. Um you know, Federer, I've told you, on any given match, he could beat anybody, but he could also lose to the number. He's not losing to the 100th player in the world, but he could lose to the 40 or 50th. Nadal, certainly because of his injuries and his wear down. Djokovic is now there. So I think next year is the year. Forget theme. I don't think theme would have won the U.S. Open if Djokovic hadn't hit a ball into the throat of the lines person. I think that has an asterisk next to it, that U.S. Open. But next year, I think we're legitimately going to see a year where one of the big three will not win a major and it might be more than one of the majors. And I, I've always, I've always really liked your sort of like, you know, kind of your, you basically your framing of how age can affect you in tennis is, is specifically, it just increases your probability of having a really bad match basically. That you and you need kind of... seven good matches yeah. to win a major. Not yeah, and two, I, I mean, not three, seven. And I'm sure we'll get to it uh, later this, uh, this quarter, but it, it, I think about it a lot as I watch Tom Brady now. Well, we're going to get to that. We'll get to football in just a second. I wanted to bring up one more before we get to football, just one last one. Um, there's actually, a lot of people don't know, they're calling it an exhibition, but trust me, this man's never been in a fight. He didn't want to hurt the other guy. There's an exhibition fight, and Adi, you'll be happy about this. There's a 53-year-old man fighting this Saturday night. 53! <laughs> and he's fighting a 51-year-old man. Um, and that's Mike Tyson, who's 53, is fighting Roy Jones, who's 51. Now, they're calling it an exhibition. Uh, Tyson just said, you call it anything you want. I'm going in there to do some damage. And so my question becomes, is there any way, like, we'll be able to say anything? Or is it just like the relative quality will be so poor? 
or they'll be so equal. Like they're both 25 years past their prime. Like let's suppose Tyson looks great. People are going to say he should fight Tyson Fury. He should fight one of the Klitschko's. Can we learn anything when a 53-year-old fights a 51-year-old, how a 53-year-old might do against a 30-year-old? I would say no. Um, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm sure you know the answer. How old was George Foreman when he made his comeback? In, uh, Great question. So George, when he started his comeback, George Foreman was, I think, 39. Uh-huh. People forget that he fought about eight to 10 fights including losing one of them. I think he may have lost to George Cooney um, uh-huh. in, his, um, in one of his warm-up fights. He then got the title fight against Michael Moore. I'm going to say he was 44, 45 at the time that he won the heavyweight champion. Against, by the way, let's be clear, the undefeated and undisputed unified heavyweight champion Michael Moore at yeah, that time. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the contrarian view here and say – it's going to be, it should be fun to watch. I mean, 51 and 53, it's old. And there's no way they're going to be competitive against the actual heavyweight champion. But I think it's going to be fun to watch. And I think um, people will talk about Tyson going in the ring. And it's going to be garbage to say so. But I think it'll be interesting. And, and, and uh, I think we might learn whether he, would, whether he would just lose or embarrass himself. That's yeah, no, I mean, I, I think there's something to be there's something to be learned, perhaps, with these guys is like, do they still have kind of the endurance to like if it's a long match and they're right. able to kind of retain their sort of abilities late into a long match? That's I think we'll learn something about their endurance, but I I still wouldn't put them in with like a 30 year old right now. It does beg the question, though, could we you know, we've got a senior tour in golf. Could we have a senior <laughs> tour in boxing? <laughs> would that be, would that be something as a society we'd be comfortable with? Let me comment on one thing. First of all, it's an eight round fight but let me also comment this is always one of those things i've always it it, you can't really answer the counterfactual but suppose i told you right now let's suppose mike tyson looks great on saturday night and suppose i thought you know he's not going to fight the champ tyson fury suppose i told you he was fighting the hundredth ranked fighter in the world could a 53 year old mike tyson beat the hundredth ranked fighter in the world like at what point do you start thinking it's possible that someone, let's say, two sigma worse than his prime could start to beat someone whose upside was never nearly as good? Yeah, no, it's a fantastic question. I, I don't know. I don't think I know enough about the drop off in box, like how, you know, kind of like the population of professional boxers out there to kind of say at what 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 the kind of threshold would be. Um, it would be a fun kind of set of betting odds to sort of set up to sort of see what the, you know, this would be a kind of fun crowdsource evaluation as, as kind of, you know, boxing betters, you know, at what point they'd sort of like give 50, 50 each to, to Tyson over, uh, over what, what, what rank of world player. But I, I think that's what we're going to learn, whether the answer is he's going to be competitive against the hundredth or it's just going to be a joke. I agree. I yeah. agree. I All mean, right, there's no way he's beating the hundredth. Well, I can tell you that, but if, if he looks one way he might be able to hold a few rounds but you know he's still a pretty old guy now i mean I, listen he's my age so when i say that i say that with all due affection and respect <laughs> so you're here listening to uh wharton moneyball this is eric bradlow professor of marketing and statistics and i'm here with my two co-hosts uh shane jensen and adi weiner both professors of statistics um we're doing zoom and we'll be continuing to doing zoom and be safe uh every week here um at, you can reach us though if you want to uh 
tweet at us. You can tweet us at, at WMoneyBall and ask us a question. You can also send us an email at moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, and we'll also make sure we answer your questions during the week. So, guys, obviously the major sport going on right now is the NFL. Um, as I said, in the fourth quarter of our show, we'll be talking to Joe Banner about what caught his eye in the NFL. But what caught your guys' eye in the NFL? Well, I mean, you know, Tom Brady uh, laying laying an egg. Uh, I, 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 this guy's camp nighttime games in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers just don't mix. It seems like these days. I don't know. Yeah, so you know, a lot of people are saying it's nighttime games, but can we agree at the following that it appears that he really can't throw an accurate deep ball anymore? And the problem is, if you have, and partially it could be because of he's 43. The other part could be he doesn't have a great offensive line at the moment, so he'll never have a clean enough pocket to do it. But it just seems to me like he can't, like I wouldn't trust him to throw a ball more than 15 to 20 yards down the field. And the problem is if the defense knows that that's true, they can crowd all the receivers and then even short passes get harder and short passes you complete are less likely to have a lot of yards after the catch. That's what I saw in the game. I mean, I, I'm not convinced. I mean, I, I can agree with you that if he's under pressure, he is unlikely to have the time to throw an accurate deep ball. He can still throw the deep ball. We've seen deep falls in other games this season. We've seen him really throw it deep at, right, and very accurately several times. Let's go for some counterfactuals here, and then we'll see what else caught your eye in the NFL. If you could have not – I'm not talking about who's had a better career. Obviously, Brady's had the greatest career. If you could have Tom Brady right now – or Ryan Tannehill, and I'm in- intentionally picking someone I think is in the middle yeah. of the pack of the NFL quarterbacks. I didn't say Russell Wilson. Yeah, yeah. yeah of course you'd have Russell Wilson. Yeah. You'd obviously still even have Aaron Rodgers. If you could have Tom Brady or Ryan Tannehill, who would you pick? Oh, Ryan Tannehill. I, th- I think Ryan Tannehill is the better quarterback at this point. No doubt about it. I mean, not, I guess no doubt about it. There is some doubt about it. But no, I mean, sure. I, I would take Ryan Tannehill. I actually, before the show went through um, – and kind of just, you know, like counted the number of teams that I think have a kind of a, a, a essentially a worse quarterback, a worse quarterback situation than than Tom Brady. Um, and there's only about 10 or 11 teams, I think, out there now that are worse. like that. Yeah, they're like that. I, I, I mean, I think he is an average quarterback right now. I, I still think he's probably an upgrade over what Tampa Bay had last season. I think they were, you know, it was it was a it was worth it for them to sign him. But yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it's we have enough evidence now that they're getting kind of an average quarterback, and and I and I and I think it also depends very much on kind of scheme and stuff like that. I mean, I'm frustrated that, you know, I mean, I we we have sort of seen that Tom Brady does much worse when he has a lot of pressure, especially up the middle, and that's why I knew the Rams were going to give him trouble because they they specialize in that's that. That's how they're built. Um, yep. But I, it's frustrating that it seems like Arians cannot deviate from this, just launch it deep, like, you know, have to wait forever to launch it deep kind of game plan when it's clear that that's not exactly, you know, his his quarterback skill sets. Yeah, you know, I and. Yeah, Adi, any thoughts on the NFL from you? Yeah, well, I was just going to remark, Mark, I wanted to ask you guys a specific question. I mean, we've seen guys like LeBron James, who you describe him as, you, there's two LeBron James. There's will the, the superstar, the mega superstar LeBron James show up, or are you just going to get the ordinary one? Are you, is that what you're seeing with Brady? Are you seeing that he doesn't 
that sometimes he performs at his superstar level and other times average, or is it just plain always average or worse? His floor is his floor is lower than LeBron James's. I mean, he's way yeah. past kind of, you know, I mean, LeBron, oh. I, you know, I mean, I, I think his floor right now is lower. I mean, last night he was, I mean, ter- I, 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 terrible. He, he was just quite I, bad. He threw his- Scotty, here's the thing also. If you look at the games that they've lost this season, they've lost to the Bears, they've lost to the Saints, and they've lost to the Rams, What's com- Saints twice. What's common among those teams is that those teams are both all defensively built. Mm-hmm. You say, because remember, it's not like, I mean, the Saints have Drew Brees. It's not like he's the greatest quarterback right now either. They're actually one of the top defensive teams in the league. Yeah. This is my concern. I think this is going to sound strange. I think the Bucks would have a this show what happened to the Bucks against Green Bay. The Bucks beat them. They beat them easily. The Green Bay is not a defensively oriented team. The Buccaneers cannot be the defensively oriented team in the playoffs. Matter of fact, I give them a better chance right now. And this is going to sound strange, but they're the same in the Massey Peabody rankings. I'd give them a better chance to beat Kansas City in the playoffs than I would to beat um let's say the Steelers in the playoffs or to give them, I'd give them a, not that they're going to play each other in different conferences, but I'm saying I would give them a better chance to have to win in a shootout against a bad defensive team than to win a defensive struggle against a team. That's actually a good defensive team. Cause I don't think I, they can score. I agree. I mean, I don't, I, I wouldn't actually give them a better shot of beating Kansas city than beating the Steelers. I would have, I would say I would definitely give a higher probability on Brady having a decent to good game against the Kansas City defense than I would against the Steelers defense or against the Rams defense. And we're going to get to see it. Aren't they playing it this, this upcoming week? They, yeah, uh, the Tampa so Bay is playing the Chiefs. This is the problem the Buccaneers now have. So the Buccaneers just lost to the Rams. You know, it, it was a competitive enough game. They're home to the Chiefs this week. Yeah. And the Chiefs have everything to play for, too, because they'd like the number one seed in the bye. Remember, this, oh, is, yeah. this is the NFL season. There's only one bye in each conference. And they're behind the Steelers. And if they lose a second game, you could probably kiss that bye week. Bye-bye. And so they definitely are going to go into Tampa to win that game heavily. Um, I think the Buccaneers are going to be 7-5 and after this week. Oh, yeah, quite possibly. No, I mean, you know, I I mean, I still think the Buccaneers are pretty locked into a a wild card spot. But, yeah, the division is looking remote now, certainly. Now, the other thing that happened this week in the NFL was a very sad kind of thing, which was happened to Joe Burrow. And so this is of the, for those people that don't know, he was rookie quarterback, number one pick in the draft, uh, played for LSU, won the national title, um, has having one of the great rookie seasons in the history of the NFL. I think he was going to break the record for yards, completion percentage, touchdowns. I mean, and He tore his ACL, MCL, and had structural damage in his knee. And now they're talking he may miss – he's obviously going to miss the rest of this season. He may miss all of next season. So this literally may end up being like almost a two-year, year-and-a-half injury for Joe Burrow. And my question to you is, how far back does that kind of set the franchise? Like Cincinnati, you know, they've been a bad team for so long. You could start to see maybe in two or three years they're going to be decent enough. Is this now we've got to think we got to change our horizon to a five-year period? And does it affect who they draft and what they do? I would argue it doesn't really. I mean, it's it's very unfortunate, only because you know I think people were very excited watching Joe Burry, and it's going to make Cincinnati football less watchable over the next year period. I don't think as an organization it sets him back too much because you know he he was he went to as the number one pick. He went to Cincinnati because they were a terrible team, and it takes more than Joe Burrow. 
he's the most important piece, but it takes more than just your quarterback to build a good team out of a terrible one. So I would argue that even if Joe Burrow was playing again next year, it's, it's going to take him several, you know, a couple years to kind of through the draft and everything else to kind of build up a good team around them specifically, obviously they it's pretty clear they need a better offensive line. And I think that should be their priority drafting wise over this next year. And maybe, you know, Joe Burrow, when he comes back in a year, year and a half, whenever it is, he walks onto, you know, essentially a, 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 you know, a team that can win then, you know, and, and he doesn't have to kind of lose like, you know, eight, nine, 10 games in a, you know, in the meantime. Well, guys, we only have a few minutes left here. So let me throw out a few of the games from this week. Remember this is Thanksgiving week. Wishing everybody out there, of course, from us at Wharton Moneyball, a happy Thanksgiving. We do have three games on Thanksgiving Day, as you always remember, is the history. The first one, I'm not sure is that exciting to people. Texans at Lions, I'm not sure that's that exciting a game. The next one, while not exciting, may well determine who wins yeah. the NFC. Yeah. Is the Cowboys and Redskins, and they're both three and seven. Only The, win- the winner of that game is going to be leading the division. Well, the I mean, until at least the Eagles play. Yep. Right. I mean, right. They they will technically by winning percentage lead the division after that game. Assuming assuming it's not a tie. That would be such an NFC East move this season is another tie. <laughs> and then I'd love to hear your thoughts. Is this the Ravens last stand? So the Ravens, you know, shockingly have fallen to six and four. They're at Steelers. That's the Thursday night game on Thanksgiving Day. If they lose that game, it's at Steelers. They're six and five. Yeah. I mean, I still they think they kind of I mean, I think I still would put them. I mean, I, I don't know exactly what it would do necessarily to their playoff odds. I would still kind of consider them even after a loss to Pittsburgh, um, somewhat of a, you know, a, a favorite for the wild card. You know, I mean, for one thing, I think they play their their competition for the wild card would be, you know, is Cleveland. And I think they play them at least once more um, and already kind of own, own the tiebreaker over them right now. Um, so no, I don't think it's their last stand as far as, I mean, it's certainly their last stand as far as the division goes, though. I think that's kind of out of it anyway, but so, not, a, I, I, I would still call them a playoff contender even after a loss at Pittsburgh. Yeah. So any other games catch your guys eyes this week? I mean, maybe, you know, I, I, I'm just looking at the games this week. That's obviously one. Of course, the chiefs at Buccaneers is probably chiefs, Buccaneers will be a great game. I think, you know, 49ers Rams. I mean, yeah, every game in the NFC West, I think is potentially interesting, um to watch titans at colts is another one that's going to be i mean that's a very big one as far as you know both that division and kind of general playoff seating goes that's good um, point. So, those are two seven and three teams yeah yeah um so i mean those are the kind of ones that sort of stand out uh to me i mean i'm you know excited to see what the patriots do against the cardinals but there's a big difference between excited and optimistic as it turns you know, what's out. interesting is that if the patriots had one last week which they had many chances to win Mm-hmm. They would have been five and five, and again, not out of the playoffs. I think at four and six, they're clearly oh, yeah, out. They're, they're, they're out. They're toast. I think. I think they're clearly, clearly out at this yeah. point. Well, guys, Sad I think true. it'll be a, a it'll be an interesting week at the NFL. Um, I think it's you know this is just a strange time because I think you even pointed it out, Shane. Like with Alabama, um, I could tell you tomorrow that the Chiefs, that you know Patrick Mahomes, Tyreek Hill, etc., they're all not playing against the Bucks, and any of that could absolutely happen. Yeah, I hope we still get that Thursday evening game out of, after some of the news today. Yep, that's absolutely true. So, guys, that's been uh, three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, we have one quarter to go where we'll be talking to Joe Banner, uh, president, former president of the Eagles, former CEO of the Cleveland Browns. Um, so, stay with us. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. 
Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. Cade Massey hosting along with my longtime buddy and collaborator, Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics. We are in the interview section of the show this week. We're delighted to have back on the show, longtime friend of the show, Joe Banner. Joe, of course, longtime NFL exec, um, most recently CEO of the Cleveland Browns. And before that, President EVP before that with the Philadelphia Eagles. He might have had something to do with the beginning of Harry Roseman's run there with the Eagles. We'll probably circle back to that here in a little bit. But Joe, afternoon to you. Welcome. Welcome aboard. Uh, Great to be with you guys. Always appreciate it. Glad to have you. You're down in Florida. Is that right? Safe and sound down there? Um, 80 degrees is sunny. Not that I'm bragging. (laughs) Uh, Just typical Thanksgiving weather. It's perfect Thanksgiving (laughs) weather. Who's going to argue with that? Um, Joe, listen, we always enjoy talking to you about, you know, all matters football. And uh, I know we want to dig into some history and some longtime questions, but let's start with what has your eye in the NFL right now? This 2020 season, we're a little bit more than halfway. I think it's living up to a, you know, it's our expectations for a good, rich season. It's not too compromised by COVID. What, what are you, what do you find to find especially interesting this year? Well, I'm, I'm maybe very in the moment, but, uh, taking joy in actually seeing a, uh, the idea of thinking about fourth down differently be so entrenched that a really great creative coach like Sean McVay is actually taking heat for not being more aggressive about fourth down. It used to be hard to get anybody's ear to even have that conversation. And now at least that one anecdotal example is so mainstream that it actually gets covered and critiqued. It's kind of a, a bigger change than it should be, but it's a big change. I think it, it, I think something interesting about McVeigh. I think people, I think people fail to understand how multidimensional a coach is, and we think that if he's sophisticated and very avant-garde from an offensive scheme perspective, then of course he will be sophisticated and avant-garde from like a analytics, you know, fourth down decision making. It's not necessarily the case at all, um, and McVeigh may be the perfect example of that. Yeah. Um, well, you've been you've been you know the fourth down stuff. It does seem like it's finally got good traction. Some, what's the next front after that? The the run pass front has been yeah. an even more dynamic dialogue in this year and last year. I know you've been kind of jumping into that. What is your position on on this run pass debate that we continue to have? Yeah, well, it's kind of crazy we continue to have. I guess the d- degree matters, but the the, the argument should be settled. Um, I mean, you know. Front and center example, the Eagles this week were uh, 19 runs and seven passes with two minutes to go in the half and had no points. And the uh, announcers of the game and the critics in the Philadelphia media were complaining that they weren't running enough. Uh-huh. <laughs> what? And by the way, you know, Carson Wentz is part of the problem, but at that moment he was eight for 10, averaging 11 yards per pass attempt. Oh, my. Oh, and, my. Uh, still wasn't good enough. Can, can we can we do Carson Wentz for a second? And can you can, what is your theory on what's happened with Carson Wentz? I mean, we're not that far removed from people thinking that he was it, and it was such a brilliant move to get him, and he started out so strong. You've seen a lot of players over your lifetime. What's your theory on what's happened with Carson Wentz? Well, I don't have any good theories, uh, and I can tell you this: if I was running a franchise other than the Eagles, and I could count on him staying healthy, I would trade for him without any fear. Really? Yeah. And, and listen, I'm not, he's playing poorly. He's a meaningful part of the problem. There are things he's got to do a lot better, but 
I can't forget the fact that he started as a rookie without being in training camp and was immediately successful. So think about what that says about him physically and mentally. Mm -hmm. And here we are five years later. Is it really possible that he regressed that dramatically? Or are there other factors, including the fact that he's not playing as well? But are there other factors that are actually driving that outcome? I mean, to me, the answer is, is yes. He is part of the problem. I'm not trying to pretend like he isn't or he's fine. Um, but I haven't lost faith in him. I probably have a slightly lower amount of confidence in that. Yeah, right. Than- yeah, Joe, could you tell us, so we can obviously look at wins and losses, and I don't think anybody probably in the Eagles organization is happy with their win-loss record right now, but when you're evaluating Wentz, what would you, what data would you look at that suggests he's playing poorly? Like maybe, I mean, I'll come up with a counter theory, although I think he's playing poorly too. Um, he's got a bad offensive line. His receivers can't get free, and motion tracking data so seems to support that. So how do we know Wentz is playing poorly or is it just everyone around him is just not supporting him in the way they need to? Well, you know, as we've said before, two things can be true at the same time. He's not playing well. And the performance of the offensive line, the failure of his skill position players, I would put coaching in the mix, are not uh, supporting him or giving him the best chance to succeed. So he has to own part of it. Um, but if they were sitting in the offensive line that they had four years ago, this wouldn't be happening. Hmm. Um, if they were utilizing things like RPOs the way they were to minimize the ability to pressure him quickly, we wouldn't be to see the same outcomes we're seeing right now. Uh, I saw a stat recently, which kind of shocked me. Um, he throws out of the shotgun almost 100% of the time, like a shockingly high percentage of the time. When he takes a snap and takes zero to one step drop, he's actually been fairly successful. Not saying he's playing great or he's going to be the MVP. He's been fairly successful. Mm-hmm. On those plays where he's taken a three- to five-step drop out of that formation, he has somewhere between the 24th and 36th worst statistical measures uh, that we have in the entire league. Think about some of the poor quarterbacks that includes, <laughs> some of the inexperienced quarterbacks that includes, some of the other quarterbacks playing behind bad offensive line that's included. So not that this is sophisticated analysis, but – you have to have him getting the ball out of his hands immediately and call patterns that force that to happen. If you call a slant, he can't take a long time to throw the ball no matter what you do. So that's why I throw coaching into the mix on things that could uh, be helping him. Um, and you know why I am a little more nervous, but still believe that he can be a top quality, top 10 quality mm-hmm. quarterback in mm-hmm. the NFL. Joe, I'm going to ask you like a Princess Bride-related question. You know, if she thinks that I think, that she thinks that I think. So as I was watching last night's Buccaneers-Rams game, my guess is the stats for Tom Brady are very similar. When Tom Brady has to drop back three, five steps, he's just not doing as well as when he releases the ball quickly. But tell me how this works as someone that's run a team. If the other team knows that, doesn't the other team just jam the line of scrimmage play really tight on the receivers because they know even if the guy gets free 30, 40 yards deep, he's not, the quarterback's not going to have time. So how do, how do you play this game of if they know this statistic and they know that I know this statistic, they're going to change their strategy to my strategy? How do you not drive yourself crazy or get sanity with all of that? Well, first of all, you got to do some things that uh, you know, take you out of that. 
I mean, it's why you hear coaches talk about occasionally stretching the field with a long pass, just because they're trying to keep the defense a little um, honest. You know, we mentioned Sean McVay a couple of minutes ago. He's had a very interesting way of doing it. He's, he gets you in, he gets, he's in a formation that almost guarantees you have to play nickel, and then he runs the ball. Or he gets you in a formation with two tight ends that makes you sure he's going to run the ball, and he passes out of that formation. Mm-hmm. Um, and you do that with, and this is what Bill Belichick's been doing for 20 years. You put a running back on a linebacker on a pass pattern, it's the easiest pass the quarterback can throw, mm-hmm. and there's a massively high chance that he's going to at least create some separation. A mm-hmm. slant. you got a big wide receiver who knows how to use his body. A really good corner is going to have trouble knocking down a slant without committing pass interference. Mm-hmm. So there are a set of plays. You know, we see, you know, people have been using screens for years. Now we've seen some teams adding bubble screens more frequently. A bubble screen, if you're trying to move your linebackers in tight to deal with the situation you just created, bubble screens can break for, you know, five or six yards if they're not very well done and 20 or 30 yards if they are. So, there are vehicles that you can use that even if the other team even knew what you're calling uh, will make it really hard to kind of shut things down the way the Eagles are getting shut down. The, this general conversation emphasizes how hard it is for us to evaluate a quarterback. We, we forever watch a guy play and think that we can read him as an individual contributor, despite the fact that he's influenced by all these other factors. It's such a hard thing to do. It's such a hard thing to do. Parse out that one guy from all these other factors it's hard enough just on the players, but now you're bringing coaches in. If Wentz could go somewhere else and be successful, it must be the case that there have been other quarterbacks who have failed in the NFL that maybe would have been successful had they found themselves in a different environment. Do you have examples from your time in the NFL where you think a guy, that guy probably could have done it. He just landed in the wrong spot. And I have another example from right now, contemporary NFL this is one of, I'm always kind of pulling for Sam Darnold for some reason. And I'm, and what's your position on whether he's being drugged down by the jets versus he's just not what we thought he was when we drafted him in the top 10. And, or would Ryan Tannehill be this example, but please, I'm going to hear your thoughts. Ryan Tannehill's the example. I was Teddy Bridgewater was a name that came to mind uh, when you mentioned that had some success in Minnesota before the injury Mm -hmm. Um, is now playing in my mind that a fairly limited offense, although, coached extremely well, but limited in terms of the talent, uh, putting up success to Anhel's a good example. Um, the, the, I get criticized for emphasizing coaching more than most when it comes to the NFL. I just think it's such a huge difference maker and there's such an opportunity to, to, uh, make players and the teams more successful. You know, you hear coaches a lot reference execution which for me is kind of an excuse that it isn't the coach's fault. It's the players. <laughs> and I was, right. in a, I was in a debate once with a coach <clears throat> on this topic who, uh, and obviously execution matters. Don't, don't hear me as if execution doesn't matter here, but uh, we're having this debate and he was blaming a player for something. And I said, let me ask you a question. If you ran a play and all 11 players in offense, players on offense executed properly and all 11 players in defense executed properly, what happens to the play? Yeah. <laughs> if, if just the if execution is the determining factor, then what happens to the play? Um, and, you know, he kind of had a pause and think and at least realized he was a little perplexed by that. But there are, uh, you know, here's another example of, of a similar thing. The stats will tell you if you're in, say, you're going for it on third and one, fourth and one. <clears throat> you're much likely to be more successful if you run the ball than if you throw it. 
But interestingly, especially if you're watching the games, you're also much more to be more successful if you run the ball out of a spread formation than if you run in three tight ends. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to watch football very long on Sundays to see most coaches are still running in three tight ends. Right. And you're just sitting there going, okay, if you run in three tight ends, you probably have to have like nine guys make their block or this play could get stuffed. Right. If you spread out three or four of those guys, now I only need five guys to make their block. And That's the play Indeed. Yeah. So if I really believe execution is that important, why don't I call plays in which a smaller number of plays can execute effectively and my play works versus calling a play where basically every single guy on the field has to execute his job properly while the play gets broke, blown up. That's, inter- that's it's super interesting. There's a robustness argument you're making. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd say if we just thought about robustness instead of precision, we might have set up offenses differently. And on the college side of things, Joe, one difference between offensive systems is how complex they are. And a lot of the best coaches stay with pretty simple systems. Maybe they throw different formations, maybe they throw motion, but they're kind of running the basic stuff over and over again. It just reminds me of Lombardi. You know, he, he was famous for whatever handful of plays he had, but he drilled it so well that execution wasn't a problem. If you take, it's another of your, it's another angle on your, on your same criticism. If you take execution that seriously, make it easy for the guys to execute. Yeah, and if you, if you believe that, <laughs> there's a very easy uh, next step. We don't need uh, PhDs to figure it out. Then design plays that either less players need to execute perfectly for it to work or their ability to execute is easier. I mean, if you have an offensive lineman, you probably hear the announcers talk about like a reach block. You've got to get all the way across and in front of a guy who's maybe on your right edge and the play is going to the left. So you have to get all the way around. That's a really hard thing to execute properly. Right. The other hand, if you say line up and just drive the guy in front of you back a couple of yards and let the player, the running back pick his hole, not so hard to execute. Right, right, right. One of the things that Kay just brought up is the difficulty in evaluating a quarterback. Um, do you think, Joe, in the era of motion tracking data, even real-time tracking, where we know how much space the receiver has actually created we could even measure now in real time the placement of the ball do you think it'll become easier to evaluate quarterbacks like here's the expected completion percentage you know Russell Wilson would have gotten on this play as opposed to Carson Wentz or here's how much time the person actually had do you think actual (laughs) data science will allow us to more easily evaluate players or do you think we'll just get smothered in data and it still won't be able to measure the true value of a player yeah, I mean, listen, I don't think you'll ever be able to use data to do the grading. But absolutely, yes, is my answer to your question. I mean, why, if you have three pieces of information versus two or one, wouldn't you be more likely to come up with the right answer at the end? I mean, it's really, again, not a really complex thought here. So if you can help me with the data on, you know, how much separation are we creating? You know, how long are we holding our blocks for? What lineman can hold a block consistently for two and a half seconds on a, on a passing play? You know, why wouldn't that make me better at, at evaluating them? I mean, one mm-hmm. of the things I instituted in Cleveland, not there long enough that we actually got to see the results of it, was that um, we were going to define by position what was the most important thing for that player to succeed at. So, for example, we put grades on offensive linemen for their run blocking and their pass blocking separately. We didn't just give them one grade. And we had an emphasis to pick offensive linemen that were going to be better pass protection than, you know, and run, running the ball because we thought that was the more, the better cause and effect that was going to produce the outcome we wanted. So, 
you can go through every position. This, the data that they have now on players' ability to get off press coverage, for example, if it's a wide receiver, this is just invaluable right. uh, in just grading people. I mean, what a valuable piece of information. It, and it feels, like, it feels like we're really just, just scratching the surface on this. We're talking to Joe Banner, Joe, longtime front office exec in the NFL, most recently CEO of the Cleveland Browns and before that president of the Philadelphia Eagles. You guys had a, you guys had a relationship, Eric and Joe. Um, Eric talks about doing some work with Eagles, and that was back in the Joe Banner day. And, oh, by the way, that was when Howie Roseman was getting started. He comes on board to help you with the, with the salary cap. And, you know, how many years later, 15 years later, 20 years later, he's GM on a Super Bowl champ. Yeah. What, what were you guys working on, and why did you bring Eric in, and how did that all go down back in the day? Well, we had some in the we at that point was Jeff Lurie and myself. Um, some really simple insights. We thought they were insights. <laughs> not everybody agreed. Um, that were not part of the conventional thinking in the league. And so we wanted to uh, uh, create some deeper analysis that hopefully people would be open-minded to to kind of change the, uh, the instincts. And there's some of the things now that are finally taken for granted, like fourth down discussions, like pass run ratios, like you know, why you build a team that, uh, you know, offensive lineman has a direct impact on the outcome of every single play where wide receiver, for example, may have only an indirect impact on some of the plays and a direct impact on other plays. So, you know, build your team so that your lines have the potential to be dominant. I mean, it started with, I almost feel stupid saying this, but you got to remember it's 30 years ago. Um, Jeff and I had this conversation before we were involved in the NFL. If, an average passing attack will produce a seven and a half yards per pass attempt. And an average running game will produce a four and a half yards per average running attempt. Why are teams running the ball, say 60% of the plays and throwing at 40% of plays? It just seemed so fundamentally illogical. Right. So, you know, we brought in people like Eric with the hope that we could actually create factual basis to have conversations with people that were entrenched in that way of thinking above and beyond just two people like Jeff and I that didn't have a whole lot of credibility based on our background in football to kind of have those kind of arguments. And hopefully that would lead, you know, to things much more complicated, but that at least got us started down the path. Yeah, I I literally, I mean, I don't even know if Joe knows the story. I met Mr. Lurie through a mutual friend. Um, Both my son and one of Jeff's sons played soccer together. And uh, my mutual friend was standing next to Mr. Lurie and next to the soccer field. And my friend waves me over and I'm like, I'm going over there. And you know, he says, um, you know, obviously I know who Jeff Lurie was at the time. And uh, Mr. Lurie said, um, I, I introduced myself. I said, what I do, I'm a statistician, I'm a professor at the Wharton School. And Jeff said, well, that's very interesting because, you know, I'm very much into Moneyball. I just read the book Moneyball. Um, the president of our team is very much into analytics. Do you think you could come down to the Novacare complex and just talk to us about what you're doing and help us build a team? Understand, he goes, I know you have a full-time job, but maybe you could just help us build a team and think about interesting questions. And I went down to the Novacare complex. And the thing that was amazing to me was, and this shows you how ingrained it became in the organization. In the five years I worked with the Eagles, I did not have one single meeting where either Howie Roseman, Joe Banner or Jeff Lurie was not at that meeting. There was never a meeting like I'm going to come down there and some eighth level person I would have some discussion with. It's just not the way it was. And um, it was um, it was really fun because, you know, we always talk about this. It's not the statistics. Yeah, that part is fun. 
but knowing that you could make a difference on the decision making of a team was um it was fun. Mm-hmm. And you know that was you know, a little side took- note that you may, may not. Be, I was going to say a little side note that you may not be aware of that it's kind of funny. Um, before you guys came in, we had actually been working with uh, three people from MIT. And the original project was both Jeff and I, if it's really dating myself, had played Stratomatic, the baseball game as kids. Sure. sure. And the idea originally with the MIT, MIT guys was to actually see if we could create a football game that was like the Stratomatic of football versus baseball, which was how we played that game. And that was part of what got us starting to think in the way that mm-hmm. um, like people like yourself came in and really helped our thinking and advanced our thinking and actually created proof points that mattered and became our decision-making process. I want to ask you all a hard question. Given that foundation and um, the regard we all have for Lurie and the regard we have for Howie and the achievements that they reached, what are we supposed to conclude from what's happened since? And if we wanted to stand up and pump our fists and say, go analytics when they won that Super Bowl, are we supposed to say, ah, maybe we were wrong? Like what, we, we can't have it both ways, right? So what is your assessment of where they are now and, and, and how they got here? Yeah, well, I mean, listen, I say this uh, as a theory. I mean, I, I really watched the team really kind of shocked as to how they're playing and uh, teams that, you know, they lost to the Giants by double digits a few weeks ago, which I think is one of the weakest teams in the league. Um, so here's my guess. Um, the success is multifaceted and the analytics and the information, even some of the things we talked about earlier, like some of the things we can measure now, we couldn't measure is a piece of it. Um, I personally put only moderate weight in analytics as it comes to player evaluation. So I'm including it. I think it matters, but there's a risk of overweighting it. <clears throat> and here's what got me thinking that way. We at the Eagles did a study realizing that league wide, based on the criteria we created, about 50% of first round picks were failing. Mm-hmm. Let's say they were bus, they were failing. And so we were like, well, why would that be? Are the scouts terrible or is there something else that's creating that? And the answer we came up with was that all the intangibles that lead to success in any profession. So I'm not talking about guys that are out getting into trouble or getting arrested. I'm just talking about like work ethic, drive, how bad you want to be great, focus, these kinds of things. Um, played a huge role in the 50% of the first round picks lead wide that were wrong. So there is a risk of not keeping the proper balance on what's driving your decisions. And I do think that there's some, uh, failure on the Eagles in that area right now, a player personnel where they, the, the balance between tape and information. Um, if, I was, if I was in house there, I'd be saying, let's sit back really objectively and look if we've, have we got this? We know both of these things matter. Right. We got them a little out of whack in the importance of those two things, because we are making, at least my opinion, kind of more personnel mistakes than we were four okay. or five years ago. Okay. Okay. I was going to ask you, I, I thought about you the other day, Joe, even before I knew you were going to be on Wharton Moneyball with us. I thought about you because it was an interesting article, and I want to ask you a question. Um, there was an article that came out about that Daryl Morey, who, as you know, has now come to the Sixers, um, was considered and offered a job in the NFL. And it made me think of you. Were you ever offered a job outside of the NFL? And do you think you could have been successful running an organization 
um, both from an analytics and player personnel perspective outside of the NFL. I only thought, I literally thought of you three days ago, and then I heard you were going to be on the show, and I was dying to ask you that question because they were saying this about Daryl Morey. Well, the irony is uh, WIP suggested it when the Eagles were doing well and the Phillies couldn't win a game. (laughs) (laughs) not Not in any other serious context that I'm aware of, but you know, I do believe the principles that, that uh, I, I want to say we applied and I was part of applying uh, would create a possibility for that, even though in mm-hmm. most instances it isn't. And, you know, look at Paul DePesta in Cleveland, who mm-hmm. I think has contributed to their success. Um, and I think it's just because he brought the principles of mm-hmm. the variety of piece of information to put together to be better, the thought of being progressive and aggressive like what we were just talking about, player evaluation. There's a role for multiple things to contribute. Do you keep them, you know, in the right order? Do you keep them in the right ratio? Um, and listen, it's always crucial that you hire other really good people. And I do think I have that skill and could have brought it anywhere. Right, right. Oh, that's um, that would have been so much fun to see you do that with the Phillies, to see Daryl. I think the only <laughs> job I would have rather Daryl have than the Sixers, which is awesome for us, obviously, is I want him to go across town in, in Houston and um, take over the Texans. I think that would have been just a great experiment to see. Um, but we'll settle for him being in Philadelphia. That's, that's fine, too. Joe, listen, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Um, love following you on Twitter. Um, always enjoy the chance to visit with you. Wish you the best down there in Florida and um, with your Thanksgiving. Have a, great, have a great week. Have a great holiday. Same to you, and great being with you as well. Absolutely. That's Joe Banner. And that has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball. We do this every week, of course, talking sports analytics for two weeks. For the whole crew, Eric Bradlow sitting out here next to me, virtually, that is. Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, the boss man, Matty Datz, the associate boss man, Dion Simpkins. Appreciate your listening. Come back and join us next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.